this uh, uh, speaking about Valentine's Day has reminded me of something which um, is not um, in line with the uh, actual thing I'm going to talk about but um, it is something that we sort of touched upon the other day when John was having a question about feeling uninspired, right? Um, if that gets worse, actually, feeling uninspired, that's uh, akin to the dark night of the soul that Jonathan Cross had a lot of trouble with. Um, it's not so common in the Buddhist tradition that this happens, well, happens, but it doesn't happen in such a profound way as it happened to John of the Cross and others like him. But um, what this Valentine's Day is reminding me of is the uh, um, fact that if we can love the Buddha as the Enlightenment principle, certainly not as a statue, I mean, not, not uh, useful to love a statue, nobody can. Uh, you can say it's pretty, it's nice, it's beautiful, or it's, uh, but not you don't love it. But as the enlightenment principle, and if we can love the Dhamma, because it shows us our own foibles and problems and difficulties and a way out of it, and if we can love the Sangha, which in this case means not just people who wear robes or as is a common idea these days, people who sit on little pillows and try to meditate, none of that is Sangha. It is, Sangha are those who became enlightened and uh, propagated the teaching so that it's still alive for us today. And that's what Sangha means in that case. What we mean with it otherwise, it doesn't matter. So if we can actually have a feeling of love for that, it's much easier to practice. So maybe we can make Valentine's Day a day of love for Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha. And that's the kind of love that can never disappoint. Neither one of the three are going to walk out on us. And, uh, or love somebody else. Or die on us. Or do anything of the things that we're always afraid of are going to happen. It's strictly something that we carry around in our heart. And when we do, it's also much easier um, to have loving kindness for oneself and others because one already has that loving feeling in the heart. So maybe uh, in this respect, we can uh, make this Valentine's Day for Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, seeing we're together here. And uh, this is what concerns us. And uh, also, in that uh, connection, I might mention it now, I was thinking that, if you like, I can give for those who want it. It's strictly voluntary. Give precept and refuge at the end of the course. So, if you like, you can let me know about it, whether you would like to do that. And not everybody has to do it. Whoever wants to can do it. And we do it in the traditional way, and I'll explain it at the time when we're ready to do it. So, um, 
we have a um, fairly full morning that Friday morning. Well, I'll go to bed early Thursday night. <laughs> so that I have enough energy for everything. So you can let me know about that, okay? Maybe you want to do it. Um, you can put it on your questions or let tell me later. I brought some Buddha words about the first jhana, which I'm going to read out to you. And this is just um, one sentence out of one of the suttas, the Pratapada Sutta of the Majjhima Nikaya, of the collection of middle length things. The, I mentioned already the uh, Samyutta Nikaya. There are five main collections of the Buddha's discourses. And they were put together strictly as memory aids. Buddha didn't put them together like that. He answered questions. Most of the time, his discourses are answers to questions. Sometimes he just sits down and says something. But very, very often answers to questions. This year, the Potapada Sutta is a total discourse on the whole way uh, from beginning to end in answer to some pretty silly questions. And because they're pretty silly, um, not silly in a worldly way, but in a spiritual way, because the man who's asking him really doesn't know much at all, they're very nice because they remind us of our own questioning. So, actually, uh, it's in that respect really nice to read what this Potapada says all the time. He can't, for instance, um, understand what it means no self. He keeps arguing all the time with the Buddha. So the Buddha is very interested in making him understand it, which is very interesting. And so he explains and explains and explains, which is very good. You know, I mean, we have the same problem, don't we? I mean, what do you mean, no self? Who is this that's sitting there? So here, it also, of course, has all the jhanas in it, and uh, all of them, actually. And now about the first one. And he's, the Buddha says, And with this delight and joy, born of detachment, he so suffuses, drenches, fills, and irradiates his body that there is no spot in his entire body that is untouched by this delight and joy born of detachment. Now, the uh, words born of detachment are used consistently for the jhanas. And people usually have misunderstood, because they don't do the jhanas, they're not taught the jhanas, have misunderstood that you've got to leave your um, home and family and job and, and disappear somewhere. It doesn't mean that at all. It means detachment from sense contact. And you can't get into a jhana, you can't get into any decent meditation as long as you're using sense contact, as long as you're bothered by your sitting position or that you're hungry, or you have a headache, or whatever else you may be having, or you're 
listening to whatever is going on outside or have your eyes open and look at the pictures as long as you have any sense contact I mean you can't meditate quite logical so I don't know why there's so many mis- well I do know why there's so many misunderstandings but we don't have to misunderstand detachment means detachment from sense contact and the more we detach the easier it is to get in and um, I did mention yesterday that we just have to let go of our contact with the world for the time being I mean obviously we're right back in it as soon as we have something else to do but not in meditation so we should make very distinct uh, separation between our mind state in meditation and our ordinary mind state we should never take the ordinary mind state and bring it into the meditation but try to use it out there so that's detachment and delight we talked about it's that feeling of delightful sensation and joy or happiness comes together with it and here it says one suffuses and drenches fills and irradiates the body so that there's no spot in the entire body that is untouched by this delight and joy now one that also gets totally misunderstood and that gets misunderstood by meditators not by non-meditators the misunderstanding that arises is this is a body thing and uh, so it's very important to become aware of the body but that's not true at all the light and joy the delightful sensation and joy are actually emotional states particularly the joy but the delightful sensation also but you feel it from head to toe and that's all you have to feel it in you can't feel it out there there's nothing there's air out there you can't feel it out there so it is actually a, a strong feeling which later on becomes strictly emotional no more physical um, and it fills the body completely which sometimes um, not um, uncommon that it starts in one particular spot the delightful sensation and the mind goes to it and it stays in that spot which is not quite correct as you can see from this explanation if the mind goes to that spot it also has a um, function to enlarge upon that delightful sensation so that it is total often people say yeah that's fine but I can't feel it in my legs that's all right that's okay um, as long as it's uh, uh, as much as up to the sitting position that's fine um, some it is it's favorable if one can also feel it in the legs because that may also counteract any uh, discomfort one may have or any dislike of the difficulty of the sitting position if one is using it but it is all right if it's up to the um, uh, where the legs start but it should not be just in one spot and if it is in one spot it needs to be enlarged upon and here it says suffusing drenching filling the whole body also 
there are some similes which are from the Visuddhi Mother con- commentary. Yeah. Similes for all the jhanas. And uh, they're quite interesting. For one thing, they're interesting because they're historical. They, um, they show us some things that we wouldn't ever use as a simile because we have no connection with that sort of thing anymore. But it also um, describes the being totally uh, filled and suffused and drenched. And the, for the first jhana, it's like this. Just as a skilled bathman or his assistant leading the soap powder, which he has sprinkled with water, forms from it in a metal dish a soft lump so that the ball of soap powder becomes one mass bound with oil so that nothing escapes. So this monk suffuses, drenches, fills, and irradiates his body so that no spot remains untouched. So we can learn from this how they used to make soap. (laughs) Which is certainly not the way we make soap. But also it is quite a telling simile that uh, he's got uh, soap powder, then he's got water, and then he um, kneads the whole thing so that it becomes the water, water and the powder become totally um, merged with each other. And that is the way that delight and joy should merge within us, so that there's nothing left. Um, so that there's nothing left other than that. Now, when we first start first jhana, when it's the beginning, um, in the beginning, it may not be like that. So we should work on it so that it becomes like that. Because the the better and the more um, complete the first jhana is, the easier it becomes to go to the next one. And there are eight altogether. Actually, there are nine, but the ninth one is only available uh, to um, non-returner and arahant, so we're not going to talk about that. It's not interesting. Um, But eight jhanas, and that's a super mundane one, the ninth one. But then eight jhanas are available to any meditator. But we do need to complete each one to the best of our ability and not become impatient. It also happens. People become impatient and they do the first one and say, oh yeah, okay, I know that now. It's delightful. So I want to know what's, what's next. And then they do something next and they want to know what's next and what's next and what's next. And um, that kind of... Um, contact with the jhanas is not useful because one does need patience with oneself and one needs patience in the meditation and not look for something else immediately. If one becomes skilled at the first jhana and skilled means certain things. Skilled means to get in there when one wants to, to stay as long as one wants to, to be totally uh, drenched in it and to come out when one wants to. Um, 
that's skilled. So if one has become skilled at it, naturally, one should go to second jhana. And the Buddha did say that it's um, quite important to realize that the delightful sensation is still a gross experience and that there are far more subtle experiences in the meditation. And obviously that's easy to see because we didn't start meditation in order to have delightful sensation. But it's one of the <coughs> benefits on the way that we get. And the benefits are, the benefit of that is enormous. First of all, in one of the other discourses of the uh, Majjhima Nikaya, the Buddha said that this is a pleasure I allow myself. So there is no um, ever any talk or any kind of hint by the Buddha that because of its very pleasant or because it has many connotations concerned with um, our physical being that one shouldn't do it. Never ever. The Middle End Sayings, the Majjhima Nikaya, has 152 discourses and uh, they're very well translated into English. There's a brand new edition has come out by Wisdom Publications. It was originally translated by an English monk, Venobanyana Muli, and it has now been revised and edited by Bhikkhu Bodhi. And uh, it's brand new printed, and 152 uh, suttas, discourses, and very few of them do not explain the jhanas. Practically all of them do. So, um, particularly all the one, all the ones that are concerned with practice. The uh, explanation is usually rather short and succinct. It's not detailed. It's not as detailed as what I'm telling you. I've often wondered why it isn't detailed and I have personally, which is just a personal opinion for whatever that's worth, come to the conclusion that most of the people who were listening to him were probably able to meditate and didn't need such detailed explanations because the jhanas are not something that the Buddha invented. They were being practiced in his time and before his time. What he was, what was new with him was the fact that he said, no, it's jhana is not the ultimate in spiritual achievement. The only means, means to an end. And that was the novelty of his teaching. But it didn't dispense with the means, by any means. It used the means. So, one of the things which we haven't discussed yet, and which is very important, and... Uh, 
some of you have heard it, but more than once probably, but might even forget, that after any jhana, we need to do three things before we open our eyes. The first thing is to recapitulate how we got there. Now, this holds true for any good meditation. If we've had a meditation which we consider worthwhile repeating, we should recapitulate what we did to get there. Now, we may find that we sat differently. We may find we ate more or less for that day. We may find that uh, we had more loving-kindness that day or at the beginning of the meditation. We may find that we'd been mindful before we started meditating. Whatever it is we find, it may be a very small matter. People find their own uh, personal trigger for that. It's quite important because it will help us to always get there. Getting to a good meditation is not a matter of chance. It should never be a matter of luck or chance. It is the pathway of the mind. Actually, meditation is a science of mind. And being a science, it has its own terminology. And also, it's explainable and it's repeatable. And if it isn't, it isn't happening. It's got to be explainable and it's got to be repeatable. Only then it's science. If it isn't that, it can be a matter of potluck, which certainly has no room in a teaching of the kind that the Buddha gives the teaching of the Buddha is exact and uh, it is, has method and it has a beginning and an end and a middle. Buddha says the Dhamma is like in the beginning and the middle and the end. It is like the ocean. The ocean, wherever you touch it, tastes of salt and so the Dhamma tastes of truth. Um, so we need that recapitulation unless we have become so skilled at this first jhana that we don't need any pathway. We just sit down and do it. We don't have to watch the breath. We don't have to do loving kindness meditation. We don't have to do a thing. We just sit down, close the eyes, and there it is. Well, then, of course, we don't have to recapitulate because it's become uh, the habitual way the mind is going. It's a science of the mind because any mind, any human mind, will go that way if allowed to. We ourselves put up the barriers and the blockages. Um, Most people have never heard of the jhanas, so they have no way of allowing it unless it happens Accidentally, which also happens accidentally. Um, but if we have heard of it and are being taught, then we have to allow it to happen. And that's the only way the mind will ever go. 
There are no choices. The only thing that we have to choose is that we do it in an orderly fashion and recognize exactly what we're doing. If we are halfway alert and half not alert, we can't know exactly what we're doing. Maybe very pleasant. Not to be quite there is quite pleasant, but it doesn't help us. So we've got to know exactly what goes on. So having heard about it, having been taught it, we have to allow it by letting go of worldly concerns, which are connected with thinking, and by being very alert to what is happening. All the mystics of all religions, of all ages, have done the jhanas. They weren't called jhana, because jhana is a Pali word, and they weren't speaking Pali. It's a dead language anyway. It was only spoken in the Buddha's time. probably wasn't even called Pali then. It's a derivative of Sanskrit. And all of them explained them according to the terminology that they were used to. And uh, used the kind of images that they believed in. And because of that, it's very difficult to have access to it. Because if one doesn't happen to believe the same thing, and that's very unlikely, that we believe what some mystic, Christian mystics believed in the 15th century. And if we don't use that terminology, we don't have any access to it. In fact, we wouldn't even recognize it as meditative absorptions, unless we had done them so often that there couldn't be any doubt. So what we have here with the Buddha is that he doesn't even give the first four any names. He just says one, two, three, four. Well, we don't need any terminology for that. Everybody can count to four. And he doesn't use any uh, other similes, analogies, or um, visionary descriptions other than what I've just read out to you. How we make soap. Well, how pragmatic can we get? You know, and you can substitute um, making dough, flour and water, and kneading it to make a bread. And that's what we would still be doing if we feel so inclined. Most people don't, but some people do. I used to make my own bread. So nothing mysterious about this, totally realistic, and uh, therefore accessible. And being accessible like that, one shouldn't hesitate to work at it because there's no other method or teaching which has the access so clearly outlined. As I said, they've done it. There's no doubt about it. I have studied Meister Eckhart and uh, Teresa of uh, Davila and uh, Francisco de Osuna and uh, studied the first two quite um, in detail. I had to study Meister Eckhart in great detail because I was giving two talks on his teaching. It didn't definitely did it. But the access to it is difficult. If you ever read um, 
the um, interior castle by Teresa Davila, which are instructions for her nuns, you will come across seven stages of enormous visionary content. Well, there are the eight jhanas, actually. But unfortunately, the people who are now, and there are many Carmelite nuns, the people who are now trying to follow in her footsteps don't know that these are meditative approaches. They think they were Teresa's own ability and not a common heritage for the human mind. Because it is so particularly visionary that it does appear to be from one person's thought and vision only. But it's a common heritage. And if we ever investigate our own yearning, our own non-fulfillment, and try to find out what we really are looking for, we will find that having experienced possibly first and second jhana only, which are of course the easiest, that's why we start with that, uh, we will find that this is exactly what we were looking for, without knowing that that's what we're looking for. We want to have happiness and peace of mind. And since we already have that within us, all we need to look for is the pathway to get there. So our first um, duty after the jhana or any good meditation is the recapitulation. How is my pathway? Which method works for me? What can I do to repeat it? Now there's also a word of um, warning. Don't sit down if you've done it once or twice and then think, okay, where's this feeling now? I've got to get it back. Uh, that's useless. Totally useless. What the thing to do is to remember the pathway and to become concentrated. To look for the feeling and to want it back is exactly counterproductive because it takes us away from concentration. It's a very common and very human reaction. Well, that was so nice, I'd like it back. So recapitulation, how to do it, how I have actually done it. That's a very important aspect. And the second thing that we do is when we recognize the fact that either the meditation hour is finished or our concentration is finished, whatever happened first, that the delight is also impermanent. Now, nobody minds having impermanent knee pains or headaches. But everybody minds having impermanent delight. So it's very important to look at the impermanence of delight. Everything that exists has arisen and therefore must cease. There's nothing that doesn't have that. 
characteristic. And we must make a dis- distinct effort to see that in this pleasurable sensation, in this delight which we may have been working on for quite a while to get there, finally got it, concentration finished, delight finished. And maybe the mind says, oh, already finished. Well, I better try and get it back now. That's the wrong way to confront that. The right way is impermanent and give it a nice smile. Impermanence is not something to um, be upset about or to dislike or to feel um, bereft when it happens because it happens every single second. If you want to feel bereft every single second, sure. But, I mean, who does? This second is impermanent. It's gone. And so is the light impermanent. That's a very important aspect, to see these things after the jhanas. Now comes the third one. And the third one is something that we need to um, work up to and work into. It's, it's what am I actually learning from this experience. Now, I have yesterday already said what we are actually learning. We're learning that we're carrying all that what we're looking for in the world already inside of us. And all we have to do is let go of the world and we've got it. But people have made so many mistakes what it means to let go of the world. One of the main things they thought was letting go of the world was not wearing the same clothes everybody else is wearing or the same hairdo, or having a job from a nine to five, or getting married, or living in a house. All these exterior and external things were thought to mean letting go of the world. Utter nonsense. Letting go of the world means stopping to think and starting to experience. And that's why all these people who did that, and I think you know exactly what uh, uh, the kid I'm talking about, are now having quite hefty mortgages and uh, going to work. (laughs) It didn't work. (laughs) So um, it's a myth. It's It's an idea that they made up themselves. Well, it's hardly likely that any of us are spiritual geniuses like the Buddha. We don't have to make up anything. We don't have to invent anything. All we have to do is follow instructions. Well, that was another thing that they thought was getting out of the world, not to follow instructions. So um, things went from bad to worse, and then, of course, they had to reverse that again, which they did. Another thing which was thought getting out of the world meant um, uh, to uh, to uh, smoke pot was getting out of the world. Sure, that's one way, but the uh, results are miserable. See, when you get into a jhana, you have a different consciousness, but the mind is ready to have it. It's been purified enough to have it. If you smoke pot, 
The mind isn't ready for anything. It hasn't got any pure, on the contrary. It's got less purification than somebody else's who, who doesn't do that. There's no purification whatsoever. So you can wind up with a nice trip, but you can wind up with a terrible trip. And also, not only that, but it doesn't change anything within. However, there's one exception that in my 22 years of teaching, I have had a number, and I can't say how many, a number of students who did do it once and decided, aha, there is something, I'll try and meditate, which is a good result. They didn't smoke pot again, they started to meditate, and that's a good result, and helped them. They might never otherwise have done it, I don't know. But that was another way of trying to get out of the world, which didn't work, of course. And it's still being tried everywhere. And the schools are full of it. And the, the kids try to get out of school life that way. But they don't. It doesn't work. There's no way it can work. In fact, if you do it often enough, you're bound to have a bad trip. Because the mind just isn't ready for this sort of thing. We get into the first jhana when we are detached from our sense contacts and having let go of all five hindrances. We have, therefore, a temporary purification. The Buddha says it over and over again. But then, you know, who reads the Buddha? Not many specialized, uh, specialized uh, kind of thing to read. And then, of course, the, the, the language is archaic, so people don't know what they're reading and everything else. That was all right two and a half thousand years ago. We are now brand new and we know what to do. Well, that uh, happens, but it hasn't brought the hoped-for results. And, uh, in fact, it has brought the opposite very often, but it also, as I said, has brought some good results and people realize there is another level of consciousness and one can get at it but one can only get at that other level of consciousness without any danger and without having to revert to stronger and stronger measures which are extraneous to oneself if one does the purification that we have already talked about in heart and mind for the um, meditative um, Experience, the purification has to be there. It isn't a final purification, nor is it a, um, a purification which will stay with us. You come out of a first jhana, you have realized it's, uh, you've seen the, the pathway in, you've realized it's impermanent, you have uh, seen that you've got within what you were looking for outside of you, and you still get angry. There's no doubt about it. Outside of meditation. But in the meditation, the purification has to be complete. Otherwise we can't meditate in that way. So that means that we're actually cleaning up. And this is a so important uh, aspect of the whole uh, meditative uh, path and the meditative path includes calm and insight. 
and all the methods that you can think of. Because when we are concentrated, even for a moment, in the jhana for longer moments, the purification, the cleaning up of mind and heart takes place automatically. And we all clean our houses that we live in, and we all clean our bodies, and we all wash our clothes, and we wash our dishes, and we, we clean the floors, and we even wash curtains, and I mean, it's, it's a big thing to keep a house clean. Whoever thinks of keeping their mind clean? Very few people. And that's what this is all about. Keeping it clean so that we can actually meditate and through the meditation, cleaning it up to the extent that it remains clean. And that's our substitution with the opposite. The dropping, the labeling, all of that is part and parcel of that. And also our, with the thoughts and also with our emotions. Without the support system of the concentrated meditation, that purification is so much uphill work that it's hardly likely that anyone will ever succeed. We can see it over and over again. People who have made it their life's work and haven't been able to do the um, concentrated meditation, the meditative absorption, fall by the wayside with their sensual desires. It just is too difficult. We have those three cravings that we come equipped with when we are born. It's the reason why we are born. There's craving for sensual gratification, the craving to be, and the opposite, the craving not to be. And they are so ingrained in the human mind that unless we have something that the mind can do, which is totally different from what it usually does, we don't have enough support for this cleaning job. Now, when we clean our houses and clean our clothing, clean our bodies, we also have support systems. We have soap, we have cleanser, we have the chlorine, we have all sorts of things. In fact, the kitchen usually is full of stuff. don't even know what's in all those bottles. We've got lots of support to, keep, to make things clean. This is what we have to have. We have to have a support to get the mind clean. Clean doesn't mean that we um, have dirty thoughts. It means that we are hampered and obstructed by greed and hate. We have to stay with the terminology so that we always know what we're talking about. Because we could say, oh well, opposite of clean is dirty. I don't have dirty thoughts. We have greed and hate. And um, both obstruct our inner happiness. 
Now we already uh, heard and uh, um, found out that joy arises simultaneously with the delightful sensation. The delightful sensation is the stronger at that at the time of the first jhana, and therefore the meditation subject. And I think I've already said that if the mind can only stay on it for a moment, try to get back on so that eventually it does become a longer period. Very often one doesn't have to go back to the breath. If it's necessary, one needs to do it. But then, as we know, that the lifeful sensations are still gross, we can deliberately, if we feel that we have mastered the skill of the first jhana, deliberately drop the uh, attention on the delightful sensations and put our full attention on the inner joy. Now that can be a totally deliberate transition. In fact, it's better if it's deliberate because otherwise we may have the situation where the mind says, oh well, where's the second channel? I don't know where to find it. Or why isn't it coming? Or, on the other hand, that's one extreme. And the other extreme is that one sticks to the first jhana and doesn't get on with it. Neither way is necessary. The Buddha quite distinctly ex- uh, explained that after having understood that the uh, delightful sensation is still uh, a gross uh, experience compared to the far more subtle experiences which the other jhanas entail, that uh, one deliberately goes to second jhana. Now, the way to do that is that one takes one's attention off the delight and substitutes. Now, we've been doing that all along. We do it in meditation, we do it in thought content, in mindfulness. We do, we're substituting all the time, at least we're trying to, if we remember, um, so here we do the same. The joy is already there. It's impossible to have the light without joy. We can't have it. So here, what we do is we substitute the attention on the light with the attention on the joy. Sometimes the joy is only felt in the uh, spiritual center, the heart center, which is sort of in the middle of the chest. And um, sometimes it's... Um, in the beginning, people find it difficult to even get at it because most people in the world are not used to being joyous, particularly to being joyous without a cause, without a cause, sensual, uh, sensual gratification. Most people have no idea what it's like to be joyous. We all know very well what it's like to be angry. In fact, we are really skilled at that. And uh, we're quite skilled at being uh, um, reluctant and rejecting and worrying and afraid and uh, uh, concerned and uh, uh, restless. We're really skilled at all these things. I really uh, think that uh, the time has come for every meditator to become skilled at the opposite. And here we have a chance. We can become skilled at joy. No reason why we shouldn't be. When we can do one thing, why not do another? 
one which will create far more um, happiness in the world, not only for us but also for our surroundings, people that we contact, and for the cosmic consciousness, and is just as contagious as anger is. So if we like to have a contagious emotion, we might as well choose one which um, brings happiness to people rather than what the Buddha called the bilious disease. So the joy that we're not used to is sitting inside waiting to be recognized. That's all. It's just waiting to be recognized. Sometimes people are helped by saying the word to themselves, not out loud, joy. That sometimes they help. Some other people are not helped by that. Some people are helped by going right to this spot here in the middle of the chest and trying to experience it there. Some people are helped by being aware of their reaction to the delight. And some people can just do it. If we have held on to the delightful sensation long enough, and it's necessary to hold on to it long enough, the joy should have become strong enough to be found, that to be recognized. It can be mild, it can be strong. It can be a feeling of inner sweetness, which is very nice. It doesn't have to be. It can be a feeling of um, being happy about nothing, which is also very nice. And having done it often enough, one can actually do that outside of meditation without meditating quite easily, being happy about nothing. A lot of people are negative and angry about nothing. Of course, they immediately try to find something that they're negative and angry about. Um, and they always find something because there's enough to be found. But uh, it's well worth trying being happy about nothing. And if we da- do practice the second jhana and are able to do it, we will see that this joy is independent of what goes on out there. It has no connection. It sits within. And as it sits within, it's like a great treasure that we all have. Humanity, all I think there are six billion of them, I'm not quite sure, five or six, I think six by now. Every moment there's a new one born. all six billion humans on this planet have this great treasure within them and practically nobody knows about it and even those who know and should know better have read about it haven't found it it's nothing other than concentration letting all that go for the time of the meditation. It's actually an exercise in doing one thing at a time. I mean, some people love to read a book when they're eating their lunch. 
It's a silly thing to do. Read a book when reading a book, eat your lunch when eating a lunch. Meditate when meditating. Think about the world when you're, when, when you're connected to the world. Do one thing at a time. Don't get angry at the mind if it doesn't follow instructions. But recognize it for what it is. It isn't following instructions. Give new ones. Maybe you have to give better instructions. Who knows? Maybe the instructions you've given it are not sufficient. Maybe they're too lackadaisical, the instructions. Or maybe they're too strong. Maybe you're putting too much pressure on. Either way. Or you're giving instructions which are not um, clear enough. Look at it. Give instructions and see whether the mind will actually go along with the instructions. It will, even if for a short time. It can't help it. Because these are all mental formations that work together. The, the joy of the second jhana is strictly emotion. But again, centered within the body. It is the, the same with the delight. It's also a feeling. Hmm? But it's all within the body. Now, when you have the ability to get there, to the joy, that too you have to retain. In other words, it's not useful for one moment only. If it's only one moment, one has to get back to it. And again, I'd like to emphasize that one has to know exactly what one is doing. Otherwise, one doesn't have the necessary benefit from it. If one doesn't know what one is doing, well, how would you get benefit from it? It's like in school. You don't know what, what you're writing. How are you going to learn to write? Well, you've got to know what the letters are. We know each letter that we put on paper. But we know it automatically. Because we've done it so often. Well, it's the same with the jhanas. It becomes automatic because we've done it so often. But we've got to know every time exactly what we're doing. Being the science of mind, it's the only science of mind. There is no other. We have sciences for everything else. Sciences for all types of things which we can think up and think about. But the science of the mind itself is this. It strengthens the mind no end. It, it gives a real um, boost to the um, mental energy. And it underwrites its capacity to think what it wants to think. I see if you have a mind that can think what it wants to think, would it ever become unhappy? That would be utter foolishness, wouldn't it? to be voluntarily unhappy. Nobody said foolish. The reason we become unhappy and upset and angry and uh, disliking and rejecting and uh, worrying and uh, uh, anxious and all the rest of it is because we allow the mind to do whatever it wants to do. And it goes from one thing to the next. But once we have 
the necessary one-pointedness which is like a sharp tool then we can use that in daily living so you mustn't think that doing the jhanas is only for the meditation hour or hours doing the jhanas is not only for that and for the purification but it's also for the strengthening of the mind to the point where it becomes such an excellent tool that it will do what we want it to do if we can do that we naturally also have the sharpness of a tool that can cut through our illusion so again we see that if we don't have the ability to concentrate and get to the jhanic states of the mind our tool the mind itself will never be sharp enough to cut through the illusion of self we can understand it intellectually why not I mean we can figure it out somehow or other but how can we make it real we probably wouldn't even do it intellectually but we certainly wouldn't be able to do it to the point where our inner feeling corresponds to the understanding there are supposedly and it's mentioned in the uh, commentaries that there were some people in the Buddhist time who didn't do the uh, jhanas and became enlightened and when one questions why that it's in the commentary it's in the Visuddhimagga uh, when one questions why that is so one has no answers the readily given the only thing that makes any sense is that they did their practice in the life before that and then had the ability to become enlightened the Buddha certainly didn't do it that way he did the jhanas and then became enlightened and also the important aspect of that was the fact that the teachers who were teaching him the jhanas and he had two teachers for that both thought just as everybody else did that the eighth jhana was the epitome of any spiritual endeavor and the Buddha said no because when we come out of the jhana and at the moment we are at the second and not at the eighth but it doesn't matter it's the same for all the jhanas when we come out we must be able to see our dukkha again you see in the jhana itself there's no dukkha you can't have dukkha and the light and you can't have dukkha and joy together it's impossible it's either or so obviously we have the opposite of dukkha but when you come out of it we have to be able to see it again to recognize it within that there's again anxiety, worry, pressure wanting to be, wanting to become wanting to get not having what one wants getting rid of what one has all the rest of it is back and that is a very important 
insight which we need to gain after the jhanas any one of them because it's the only thing that will be enough of an um, spur to really practice if we don't see that we fall into the error that those people did fall into that were teaching the jhanas to the Buddha they didn't see that they thought well that's all there is and that's all we can do and that's the highest of any spiritual growth the Buddha said that the jhanas are mundane not super mundane so the transcending of the human problem is super mundane so obviously with the jhanas we don't transcend the human problem but we show it up for what it is it's connected to impurity it's connected to our thinking process which results in reacting and it's connected to being unable to keep the mind so steady that it follows instructions so we realize and see all that as a result of investigation first the recapitulation unless we can get into the jhanas any old time no need to recapitulate secondly impermanence and thirdly this what I've been talking about all these different insights particularly the understanding dukkha is back even though it is somewhat cushioned by being able to get into the jhana our dukkha is really cushioned by the ability to put your mind on inner joy helps us even though without proper insight helps us to put the mind on joy also in daily life in other words become skilled at it as I said already but it does not protect us from hate and greed the protection of, from hate and greed only comes with the destruction of the delusion or the minimizing of it first so we need insight again and again more and more and as we do the jhanas we must never forget that their purpose is insight it's purification which makes insight possible a mind which is emotionally upset a mind which reacts a mind which tries to solve personal problems cannot possibly gain insight in no self how could it it's concerned with me and a mind which cannot see that self creates dukkha cannot gain insight because then there's no reason to let go of self if we don't see that it creates dukkha so only if we see that it creates dukkha can we possibly do anything about it in fact it's the only dukkha creating manifestation in the whole universe there's nothing else that's it the self-delusion 
is the Dukkha creating manifestation in the universe. Now, seeing that, and particularly after jhana, is very helpful. It doesn't mean that we then get rid of self, but seeing it means that we know what we're doing, we're practicing to see the uh, Dukkha creation that it has any time it happens, and it happens all the time. So, we can of course do contemplations, and we should, and we have done them here. And we can use meditation also to uh, look at impermanence, if we can't get concentrated, to look at the impermanence of the breath, and all that type of thing. But, the um, way the Buddha always recommended was do your calm meditation first and then look at what inside it provides. The calm mind, even if it isn't totally calm, but only has a measure of calm, <coughs> is a totally different mind from the discursive thinking mind. It's a different, like it's a different page of a book. It's the same book, but it's a different page. It's a totally different story written on it. Our mind is a storybook. Very, very fat storybook. The pages are so innumerable we can't count. And we're well acquainted with only very few of the pages, those that we deal with every day of our lives. It's very much like reading a newspaper in a foreign language. All you need in a foreign language are less than 1,000 words of the foreign language you can read the newspaper perfectly. Well, languages contain far more words than that. Our mind contains far more than what we usually deal with. We usually deal only with that which is geared towards survival. And of course geared to, to perpetuate the self-illusion. Those two things we deal with all the time. But we have so many pages. They are all fully written. All we have to do is turn the page and look at something else. That's what happens in jhana. We turn the page and there's something entirely different. And of course, when it happens for the first time, the mind says, Oh, what was that? Never seen that before. It's fine, got to start again. That's okay. A second time, the mind might say, Oh, that's very nice, I have to have it again. I have to start again. Uh, that's okay. All these reactions are very common until one becomes so used to doing the jhanas in meditation that there's no uh, surprise or any kind of reaction. We have mental abilities which we never use. If we do the jhanas, we come nearer to them. We have so many mental abilities people talk about and imagine they're actually having them. It's usually wishful thinking. There are a few people that have them, but most of it is wishful thinking. 
It's again another one of those modern ideas for how to get out of the world. If one can't do the jhanas, one hasn't got the mental abilities, which are manifold and other than the ones that we're using. Because any mind that can do anything other than what we're doing is a mind that has to be able to be concentrated. And if it doesn't do the jhanas, if it isn't concentrated, it hasn't gone beyond ordinary, our ordinary everyday ability. Our ordinary everyday ability is um, um, not sufficient for happiness. Nobody gets happy that way. In fact, it has a lot of um, ability to make us unhappy. It seems strange that most people never become aware of this. It's so obvious. But every meditator should be fully aware of this. And even though one may not be able to do the jhanas, one should still investigate in the manner that I have um, talked about, seeing whether the uh, perpetuation of the self-illusion is not one of our main items on the daily program of our thoughts, and also dukkha producing. And then we will be maybe more um, eager to and more inclined to do the practice. Now the purification practice, as you well know, goes on all the time, not just in meditation, but the meditation is the really strong antidote really the strongest antidote for our uh, impurities. One of the things that we find in the um, transcendental dependent arising, which I also have talked about briefly, and starts with dukkha, and I mentioned it in connection with dukkha, is that there is also joy mentioned before we ever get to meditation. There is um, confidence in the Buddha's teaching and then joy. Now the joy that is mentioned there is not the meditative joy, but it's a great help. And the help that it gives us is joy. The joy of having understood that there is something available to us which takes us out of all the um, problems and all the worries and all the pressures that beset human beings, that joy is necessary for concentration. So it's one of the things that we need to do. To think about, if it doesn't come natural, to think about whatever found in this life that really provides a pathway out of all problems that could possibly arise. And if the answer is, I haven't really found anything, so I'm really happy, really happy to know what the Buddha taught, that inner joy 
helps the mind to become concentrated. If we sit down with skeptical doubt, we can have a guarantee it's not going to happen. That's guaranteed. If we sit down with the idea, I'd like to be concentrated, but I can't, I guarantee it won't happen. If we sit down with the idea, I'm going to first solve all my personal problems, and then I'll meditate, guaranteed not to happen. You have solved one problem, there's a new one. They, uh, they have babies. a great um, writer and actually satirical writer Wilhelm Busch um, made a verse about that in German that if we think we get rid of our problems and desires we shouldn't be happy about it because they all get babies Um, so we need to sit down with a joy with the joy of knowing here is something that can take me out of my ordinary way of thinking, my ordinary reaction to all the difficulties that human beings have. This is the pathway that all enlightened beings have taken and I have the great benefit of also being on it or anything else you'd like to say to yourself. These are just suggestions. You don't have to use these words. Anything at all will do. Just so joy arises. I thought it was, um, I personally thought it was very um, joyful to know, to be on a pathway that others had become enlightened on. But not everybody might think so. You might think of something else. Think of something else, make it up yourself, as long as you become joyful about it. And only then is the uh, meditation mentioned in the dependent arising. And dependent arising means cause and effect. And here we have also in the jhanas cause and effect. The primary cause is concentration. And being, having through the concentration, Purification is the primary cause. And the effect is the first jhana, the delight. And then the delight becomes the cause for the joy. So that we have one jhana always the cause and the next one being the effect. I will mention the third jhana right now and then um, we still have time tomorrow maybe to talk about the um, the fourth and the uh, um, formless meditative absorptions which are from number five to eight. Even if you can't do them it doesn't matter we, um, it does help to know something about it. It's like reading a road map. It's quite important to know where one is going. One's got to get back to the point where one is at on the road map. 
if you want to go from here to uh, Sydney, it's quite helpful to know which way to go that there is Sydney. But then, having seen where it is, we have to get back to the point where we're actually uh, located so that we can take our take the trip. So it's quite helpful to know where the mind can go. Now, joy, which is also prerequisite for meditation, as I've just explained, and also the second um, second meditative uh, focus we have is the cause for contentment. Now there's one other thing that happens with the joy. It gives a great deal of self-confidence. The self-confidence arises because we have experienced the fact that we can be joyful without having to get anything from anyone, anywhere. The self-confidence arises because we also uh, experience the fact that we are now becoming more skillful at joy. And becoming more skillful at it, we have it more often during the day. So the self-confidence that arises creates more joy. It's not a kind of superiority feeling that isn't self-confidence. It's an antidote for skeptical doubt. It's a, a confidence in what one is doing, and it's confidence in the, in the teaching, because it provides something that we didn't have before. So, joy as a prerequisite, as an emotion, which is the focus of attention in the second jhana, has to be held long enough so that it becomes a cause for contentment. If it's only very brief, it doesn't become a cause. It's too brief. We have to go back to it. But when it does become um, a cause, which means it has been held long enough, contentment arises. A feeling a very strong feeling and emotion which is again suffusing and drenching that there's nothing to wish for. Now this is a very um, important insight which arises in the third jhana and which we can after the third jhana actualize in the mind. I can only be contented when I'm not wishing for anything. There are innumerable objections to that statement if one hasn't done third jhana. And the objections are, uh, I'm going to preempt a few of them. Um, the objections are usually, well, how can I live in the world without wishing for something? Actually, the answer to that is why don't you try? Um, it, it's, it's, it's very uh, uh, peaceful. I mean, if you really want something, it destroys the inner peace immediately. Because you really, you, know, you don't know whether you're going to get it, and uh, you're intent on getting it, and just, just being intent is real pressure, makes things 
so unpleasant because there's this kind of um, like a grasping inside I've got to have it that way and of course the mind justifies why one has to have it that way because mainly because it's so much better well really how do we know because maybe there are karmic consultants is it really so much better maybe that which we consider very unfortunate and uh, quite obstructive to us it's exactly what we need in order to learn something in fact it's not only maybe it's for sure it's exactly what we need otherwise it wouldn't be happening but if we don't learn from it then we can be sure that it will be happening again and again until we've finally learned our lesson because we haven't recognized it as a learning situation we've only recognized that it's something we didn't like would like to have different and then of course it has to happen again so that the mind finally latches on to goodness I've had this happen already five or six times or fifteen times the person with whom it happens every time had a different name but the situation was exactly the same most people wake up to it after five or six times some need longer some never wake up to it just keeps going on and on and on and the idea behind this is that that one becomes cleverer and therefore can handle it better which unfortunately is not true without purification we don't handle anything better we've got the same hate and greed every time we can be as clever as we want to be and most people are fairly clever doesn't help them at all these are all the same pages of the same book over and over again very clever but not purified so when we experience the result of joy which is contentment afterwards when we investigate what we have learned we have learned in that instant but that's afterwards not while we're contented afterwards we have learned that one can only be contented when one is wishless and during that particular meditation one was wishless because one had what one wanted one had inner joy what one has really been looking for all the time and having got it one doesn't think about other things that one wants because it's all pervading just as the uh, thing I read out from the Buddha the joy was all pervading so the contentment arises automatically and the understanding that there is no way to be content as long as we want anything and the happiness which arises out of the contentment will help us in daily life because the contentment in the third jhana merges into a feeling of peacefulness and the peacefulness which is then the overriding factor of concentration is then afterwards seen quite clearly as having only been possible because there were no wishes wishlessness is one of the three doorways 
to enlightenment. It means having understood Dukkha completely. All three of them, Anicca Dukkha have their own doorway. And wishlessness is the doorway when one has seen Dukkha perfectly. It doesn't matter which one of the three characteristics one sees perfectly and which doorway one takes to enter, but wishlessness is it. Because we have understood and seen and experienced the fact that as long as we have wishes, there will be Dukkha. Now, obviously, not to have any wishes in, in daily life that's a totally different proposition to being wishless in the third jhana. But at least it gives one a taste what it can be like. And that taste of what it can be like makes all the difference. Because otherwise we'll never get near being wishless. Our mind has too many ideas. And the insights aren't strong enough. Because if we ever actually have total wishlessness, we have the access to total enlightenment. So while we are maybe having insights which are partial, we may have partial wishlessness. In other words, we may not be so interested in things we used to be interested in. The Buddha gives an example there. He says, well, a little child goes to the beach and it makes some sand castles. And it's very happy with the same castle. And then grows up a bit and buys the um, parents buy a beach ball, play with the beach ball. And then gets a little older and comes with a surfboard. No more interested in sand castles, no more interested in a beach ball, but really loves the surfboard. And then gets a little older yet and brings a girlfriend. Not interested in the surfboard at all. Now it's the girlfriend. And then maybe let that go too eventually, but we don't get that far with the story. So we may actually be letting go of a few of our um, habitual desires. Maybe we used to like to go to the movies and we don't want to go anymore, which is very common because people watch television instead. But... um, or maybe we used to uh, love to go shopping. Or maybe we don't want to go shopping. Or these sort of things. Maybe we've left a few things behind. I'm sure we found some new ones. Which we now really like to do. So we mustn't kid ourselves that we are wishless. If we, uh, if we compare the state of being in the third jhana to our state of being in daily life, we'll know the difference. If we haven't got said jhana, if we haven't got there, then we know anyway that we are not wishless. But it can easily arise, this kind of confusion or um, this kind of um, imagination that we are already wishless because there are quite a number of things that we don't want to do anymore. Well, first of all, we've grown older. And the sandcastles don't look so enticing anymore. It's very possible. And maybe the, uh, the things that looked like they were really going to provide happiness, we have tried them so often, we don't want them anymore.
or we try new ones. So the uh, extremely important aspect of Sajjana is the ability to check out our different reactions that we have in the jhana or have had in the jhana and that we have in daily life and then we do know what wishlessness is and that is a very one of the important aspects of the jhana of the third jhana the um, second one the joy gives us the contentment because joy is the um, counteraction or the antidote for our fulfillment, the craving for sensual gratification. And being that, it also merges with the one-pointedness. The two together work against our craving for sensual gratification because if we are already joyful within, we don't really have to get anything else. We've got already what we wanted. Because we're only looking for sensual gratification because we are, don't have that inner joy. And it works, of course, as I said yesterday, against restlessness and worry. Because when we have joy, well, what are we going to be restless about? All these are the causes for the effect which arises in it.